Why don't you grab your Bible, turn to Micah chapter one as we continue our through the Bible study. I like um, each one of these prophets that we've been studying just as people. It's interesting to see their different personalities and their, um, you know, the response they got from various people. You know, Jonah got an amazing response to a half-hearted sermon where Jeremiah got zero response to a passionate, loving sermon that was 42 years of preaching and no one listened. Um, you know, we had Amos, the, the goat herder from you know, Timbuktu who went to the fancy place and ministered. And you know, it's, it's interesting, each prophet's kind of got its own personality, um, but Micah's um, unique in a couple of areas. Um, one of the unique things about Micah the prophet is um, he was heard by the people. The people actually would listen to what he had to say, which was unlike many of the prophets. Um, there's only a few other prophets where they even gave somewhat of a listen to, but we're gonna find out that Micah actually was heard. And it, it is an interesting question. Why would Micah be heard where say like Jeremiah wasn't? Um, those are some interesting things to think about. Uh, but Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah the prophet. Um, and, um, and so it kind of helps us with the time frame. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But one of the things about the, uh, the prophet Micah, he came, you know, 120 years before the prophet Jeremiah. So, um, you know, Jeremiah was around when the Southern kingdom fell, you know, ultimately in 586 BC. Micah would be around when the Northern kingdom would fall uh, to the Assyrians. Um, and um, what's interesting, is Jeremiah quotes from the book of Micah, which is kind of interesting of all things. Uh, in fact, why don't you keep your finger here in Micah chapter one and go with me to Jeremiah chapter 26. Um, uh, what was going on there in Jeremiah 26 is uh, the people are like, this guy, we don't like Jeremiah, you know, let's kill him. Because um, they didn't like what he was saying. But listen to the, the reason why Jeremiah lives. Micah the prophet's gonna save Jeremiah the prophet's life. Um, even though he lived, you know, 120 years earlier. It's Jeremiah 26, uh, verse 16. Jeremiah 26, 16. It says, um, then said the princes and all the people to the priests and the prophets, this man is not worthy to die for he hath spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then rose up certain of the elders of the land and spake to all the assembly of the people saying, Micah, uh, the Morashtite prophes uh, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah the king of Judah and spake to all the people of Judah saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field and Jerusalem shall become heaps and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Ju uh, Judah put him at all to death? He, did he not fear the Lord and besought the Lord? And the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them. Thus, might we procure great evil against our souls. This is great. In Jeremiah, you know, Jeremiah, they're, they're threatening to kill him because they didn't like his prophecies against Jerusalem. So they said, let's kill him. But then they said, well, maybe we shouldn't kill him because remember, Micah the prophet said the same thing Jeremiah's saying. And Hezekiah didn't kill Jeremiah or, or Micah during that time, which starts to tell you a little bit about the timing of Micah's ministry. But isn't it interesting that, you know, 120 years after uh, Micah would prophesy that about Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah, that verse would be used uh, in chapter three. By the way, that's chapter three. We'll see that tonight. 
uh, of the verses that Micah quoted there of Jerusalem, but those verses would save Jeremiah's life. I think that's kind of funny there in Micah 3.12. But all that's to say, go back to Micah, the book of Micah, um, leaders say Jeremiah um, may actually um, have been put to death uh, if it wasn't for that prophecy, uh, as it turns out. Um, like Amos, remember I told you Amos was the fig picking herd, herdsman from Tekoa and all that? Well, as it turns out, like my, uh, Amos, Micah is somewhat from a small town, Hicktown. Um, but, uh, but in the same way that Amos had to go to the fancy place of, of uh, Samaria and all that, Micah would also have a rural lifestyle, rural lifestyle, but an urban kind of ministry. Um, I kind of like these guys. I think maybe I, I, I feel them just a little bit as a guy who grew up in a small little uh, farming community. Uh, you know, we had a big cattle ranch in my backyard when I was a kid, Martin Greer. He had a, you know, thousand head of cattle. And, uh, you know, and, and it was just kind of where I grew up out in the Hicks, sticks of Applegate, Oregon. Um, and, um, and then the Lord called me to the thriving metropolis of Portlandia. Uh, and that was a shock. It was a shock to, to Deb and I to move from uh, small town America to, to live in uh, you know, Portland. But, but uh, I, I sometimes uh, think it's interesting that God uses people that are kind of outside of the ordinary uh, to, to perhaps speak his word. People that you, you'd almost think would be the last people to use. Some podunk hick was the guy that would actually be used like Amos, but in the same uh, same thing, Micah was, was uh, the same way. By the way, Micah, so he was a contemporary of, of uh, three major prophets. Same time was Micah as Isaiah, uh, Hosea, and Amos. Those, all those prophets were doing their thing at the same time. Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, and Micah. Um, there's speculation that um, Isaiah and Micah very likely were friends. And there's a few reasons. Um, uh, uh, in fact, a lot of your commentaries will say he's the friend of Isaiah and they just sort of take that for granted. Um, because of the style and the nature of Micah's prophecy and how similar it is to Isaiah the prophet. Um, some scholars call the book of Micah the little Isaiah because it is, it's like a little miniature Isaiah in some ways. And there's people that have written books about how Micah is the little Isaiah. So it's, it's an interesting observation. Um, even though Isaiah and Micah were very different people. I told you that Micah was a little more of a country bumpkin kind of guy, um, but Isaiah was, you know, accessing royal courts and he had, he had uh, you know, dignities that he was intermeddling with and all this stuff. And, and Isaiah was sort of uh, lofty where Micah was more humble. But, um, but there is striking similarities between the two prophets, Isaiah, the big book, and Micah the small, um, but people see those, um, those tie-ins. For some people, um, Micah is one of the favorites of the minor prophets. So there's a lot of people who would say, yeah, the book of Micah is one of my favorites. He uses uh, beautiful language and poetry and all kinds of you know, literary techniques. We might even talk about some of those tonight. Some of the techniques he uses are uh, very flowery. And if you appreciate literature, uh, you'll appreciate Micah. His writing is sharp but it's also touching and personal. Um, he kind of does both of those things. Um, and, and really, Mike is gonna pronounce judgment on the cities um, uh, of Israel and Jerusalem and also in Judah. So both the north and the south, Micah will target uh, northern Israel and southern Israel uh, in Judah. Um, interesting how the Lord targets cities. Why do you suppose? Are cities more sinful than the country? 
Have you ever thought about that? Uh, me being from Applegate, Oregon, was Applegate less sinful than, um, than Portland? Well, I don't know. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing. I think, I think it's a little bit um, because of the masses. There's something that happens in big cities where um, at least in a small community, people go, wow, that's kind of bad. And you see something bad and everybody's kind of a little shocked. In the city, there's a group numbing that takes place. Well, they did it, so we can do it. And you got all these people piled together. And as, as um, you got greater, um, you know, um, packed in people, you have more packed in sin. Uh, it's like, um, it's, it's not that people are less sinful, I would say, as much as um, the, the propensity to sin in the great cities uh, is often where you see, you know, the epicenter of evil. And that's why God seems to constantly send his people to the cities to preach the word. Um, that's kind of what Micah's ministry would be. He's a, he's a country bumpkin with a, with a um, you know, kind of a city type ministry that uh, God has given to him. His, his message um, is gonna be really relatable to us um, because Mike is gonna be dealing with some of these big city problems, which is some of the things we're seeing. Boy, it's an interesting divide in America today when you look at the city centers and the giant population centers and the worldview there versus the other places in America across the country that are more of the small town areas and just the worldview is entirely different. And we're seeing in the last couple of years, this massive migration of people um, relocating and moving because they can't take it anymore. They can't live in San Francisco, Portland, LA, Seattle. And so they're all moving to Boise and Arizona and Texas and uh, other places, uh, Alabama. Like it's, it's interesting the places people are moving away from the big cities because uh, some would say, man, sin is just piled up. And it's, it's gotten kind of grotesque in some ways. Um, so Micah, he's going into the city to preach uh, to the cities. And we're gonna see uh, some relatability to this, I think in our days. Um, he's gonna condemn sins like violence and corruption, robbery and covetousness, um, gross materialism. He's gonna deal with that. He's gonna talk about spiritual bankruptcy and illicit sex. He's gonna deal with all those things. Um, and, and some people have even labeled him the prophet of the city, which is kind of interesting. The first three chap chapters of this book uh, are dealing with judgment and they're kind of heavy. But the last four chapters are gonna be comforting and he's gonna seek to comfort the people. Um, now, by the way, uh, like I said earlier, uh, uh, Micah probably saw the, um, the repentance of Israel. Uh, the, remember during the reign of Hezekiah the king? when Hezekiah led the people in sort of a righteous revival. Um, Micah was probably there as, and maybe even a part of that revival, uh, if you remember your story with King Hezekiah and what have you. So that's kind of the background of Micah and what he's doing. Let's, let's dive right in, Micah chapter one. Here we go, verse one. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Micah the Morassite in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, when you read Samaria and Jerusalem, that's the north and the south, civil war. And there was wars raging, by the way, even at this time period, there were still you know, wars going on. The political atmosphere during Micah's ministry was that of civil war. Israel and Judah were battling it out. By the way, um, we don't have any idea really of how bad, I mean, in the civil war of the United States, there was over 600,000 people killed in that horrible war of the United States uh, Civil War. 
But did you know in the civil war between Israel and Judah that in one day, 120,000 people were killed? In one day of the civil war of, of Judah and Israel. So it was a bloody, brutal uh, battle. And both sides, north and south, were moving away from the Lord during the time of these guys' prophecy. Um, now, when we look at this verse one, it tells us Micah was, was in the days of, and then lists those kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. This sort of defines the time period of when Micah would have been in ministry. It would have been around 750 BC to 686 BC. That would have been the era of Micah's ministry. Um, you know, um, some say it's shorter than that because they believe he died uh, before Hezekiah was no longer reigning. So some place his ministry about 40 years from 750 BC to 710 BC. Um, but, um, but interestingly enough, Hezekiah, the king, did move everyone back toward the Lord. Now, do you guys remember uh, Hezekiah's son who reigned after him? Does anybody remember his name? Manasseh, maybe the worst king in the history of Israel. So it was a short-lived revival uh, there in, in um, you know, Israel and, Jeru and Jerusalem, um, all that to say. Um, now, another thing that's interesting, while Micah probably saw the, uh, the Hezekiah's revival, he also would see um, the Assyrian crushing the Northern 10 tribes. In 722, if you recall, that's when the Assyrians uh, took captive and wiped out the Northern 10 tribes. So Micah's ministry was the time of great activity. There were revivals, but there was also, um, you know, total crushing by the Assyrian empire. Um, but his ministry was both to the North and the South. Um, his focus, by the way, would be more toward the South. And one of the things I've noticed commentaries don't really note on this, but I find it interesting. It's almost like Micah says, um, watch the North and learn from them. As you know, the Assyrians come and crush um, you know, the, the, the North. Micah's message is almost like, man, uh, Ju Judah, Jerusalem, you don't wanna go the way of those guys. And um, wise is the man, wise is the woman who learns from other people's mistakes. It's better to learn by watching than actually having to go through it yourself. Um, how many of you guys were the youngest in your family? Raise your hand. Yeah, you, you and me, we were both. Um, how many of you guys learned from the mistakes of your brothers and sisters? Yeah, uh, that's the benefit of being the youngest. Um, man, my sisters, I just watched what they did and saw what got them into big trouble and then kind of avoided those things. Uh, that was great. Uh, it, it, I got in other trouble that uh, I didn't see them learn from, but, uh, but I did learn a lot from them uh, as well. But that's really what Mike is trying to say, saying, hey, you guys, uh, your, your brother there in the north, um, as they're being crushed by the Assyrians, let us learn a lesson. And we'll see that um, as it goes on too. Um, but it's, it's not just the north, the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south, but it's also the kingdom of Portland. We have to remember these stories were written for our admonition. All scripture, including the book of Micah is given for instruction, correction, reproof. Um, this is what the Lord tells us in his word. Um, now, another thing we learn in verse uh, uh, you know, one is um, he was a Moorishite, um, uh, Moorishite site. And um, this, this is a, a little country town, 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Um, and it's not that far from the city of Gath, uh, the Philistine city of Gath. Um, and sometimes you'll see in the Bible, it's called Moorishite Gath, that's what they called it. Um, but that's where this guy Micah was from. Now, the reason that is important, you remember when Jeremiah said, remember Micah, the Moorishite? Um, that's the way they identify this particular Micah. 
There are five particular Micahs in the Bible. So don't be confused when you read about the various Micahs in the Bible. Um, this Micah is Micah the Morishite. That's kind of his identity from where he's from, okay? So just a heads up on that when you come across this, this, um, this whole thing. Now in verse two, um, he uh, gives us uh, one of his literary signals of uh, sections um, that you should know about. When he says, hear ye, or hear, that's like a sign, oh, he's, he's, he's um, sort of dividing into a new section. And, and you can jot these down in your notes if you want to, but the first hear ye is Micah chapter one, verse two, where he says, hear all ye people. That's the first marker. The second marker is in Micah chapter three, verse one, where he says, and I said, hear, I pray you. And then Micah chapter six, verse one, he also starts that out, hear ye now. And so some scholars divide the book into those sections of the very, kind of the various hear ye sections as they call them. Um, but in section one, the first hear ye, uh, you know, uh, is the sin of the people. And he's gonna call them out for their sins. When he says, listen up, hear ye, um, that's what he's gonna do. So it says uh, there in, in verse two, hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is. And let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, behold the Lord uh, uh, cometh forth out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains shall be molten under him and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire and the waters that are poured down a steep place. For the transgression of Jacob is all this and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? He starts off saying, man, the Lord's gonna come and he's, and he's basically describing a cataclysmic activity that's gonna happen. God's gonna come and judge them. And the idea is kind of in a cataclysmic way. As soon as he puts his foot down in judgment, he, he uses this flowery language, let the mountains be molten under him. He, where's he gonna go? He's gonna start in the high places. Do you guys remember? What did they do in the high places? Yeah, that's where they worshiped idols and did all kinds of pagan things. And the Lord says, man, I'm gonna put my foot first in the high places. And then those mountains that I put my foot on, they're gonna melt and they're gonna be destroyed like wax, he says. Um, and the idea is Micah saying, man, you guys better wake up uh, and fear the Lord because this is a, a very somber warning. And, and notice, he, he, this is that, that imagery of, of saying, you know, the Northern 10 tribes, they're already kind of toast because they had all the high places and stuff. But, but then he asks sort of in a flowery uh, rhetorical way, he says, you know, um, isn't this the house of Israel? But what about the transgression of Jacob? Is not this Samaria? See the Southern tribes would have said, yeah, of course, Samaria should be judged. They're evil and doing all kinds of bad things that Northern tribe, that's the people they were having civil war with. So no wonder, you know, yeah, of course God's gonna judge the Samaritans, but then the Lord's saying, but what about Jerusalem? Micah's kind of calling them all out saying, you guys think that the Samaria region is bad. What about Jerusalem, which is the heart of the Southern tribe? Um, and he's saying, you know, what do you think God's gonna do to you guys? Are you kidding? Um, it is funny how we tend to think God's gonna judge other people. 
And we sort of get excited about that. Oh yeah, let justice prevail. I'm glad God's gonna bring an everlasting righteousness and judgment. But then you kind of forget, what do you deserve? What have you done? Um, oh man, my sins on you look horrible, but my sins on me, well, they're really not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. Uh, I know the intent of my heart and you don't. So your sins are ugly, mine are not. Like that's just human nature. Um, but that's the way Mike is calling it out. He's saying, you think Samaria is bad? What about Jerusalem? That's what he's saying, kind of heavy. Um, now in verse five, um, when it talks about the transgression of Jacob, there was actually something going on at this time. The people were still worshiping God in the morning at the temple in Jerusalem. But in the evening, they'd go to the um, high places and worship the pagans um, at night. That's the way they were rolling. It makes me wonder, oh, how easy it is for us as Christians to think we're checking the box that, man, we're walking with the Lord, we're doing the right thing. Look at, we're at a Wednesday night Bible study. Um, but we have to also ask ourselves, are we sneaking up to the high places after we're done with Bible study? Um, you know, are we going to church on Sundays or Saturday nights and thinking, checking the box of spirituality, but then acting in more of a paganism kind of way? Um, that's the problem. You know, it's, 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 it's the same thing we have to ask ourselves. Are we just Sunday Christians, as they call it? Um, and then Monday through Saturday, party down, down people, you know, and living, you know, sinful lives. But we're, we're called to be Christians throughout the week, all day, you know, all day long. Uh, um, you know, it's an interesting thing to ask yourself. Uh, um, if, if Christianity became illegal today, would there be enough, you know, um, evidence to convict you? Have you ever thought about that? Um, it's something you should probably think about because it's actually coming. Do, do you guys see that? Did you guys hear about the, um, the uh, Finnish uh, member of parliament from Finland um, that's uh, in court proceedings as we speak? Um, uh, Paivi uh, Rosinen, a 62-year-old medical doctor and grandmother of seven, uh, a Finnish member of parliament, faces three charges of so-called ethnic agitation, is what they call that, uh, for express, expressing her belief in the teachings of the Bible. And here's, here's her crime that she's being convicted of. Two years of prison, that's what she's looking at. Because in 2004, she made a pamphlet on marriage um, uh, and also taking part in a discussion on a radio show in 2019 and for a tweet with a picture of a Bible passage. For this, she faces up to two years in prison of conviction, convicted. Meanwhile, Bishop, uh, I don't know how to say his last name, Pajola, faces a single charge of ethnic agitation for merely hosting um, this, this um, parliament member's booklet on his church's website. Uh, the booklet basically argued that marriage is between one man and one woman. Um, if convicted, Bishop Paholja uh, faces the prospect also of two years in prison. This is in Finland. This is where there's supposed to be technically democracy and freedom of speech, if you didn't know that. Um, they're arresting pastors today up in Canada. Uh, it's kind of interesting to watch that. It's coming, I think it's coming. I think we can feel it coming here in America. Question is how long is it gonna to take to get here? I've been shocked at how quickly things are moving. Um, but um, if, if suddenly, you know, Christianity became illegal, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, Brett, that sounds scary. I'm not gonna let anybody know I'm a Christian. Party down during the week. Ooh, ooh, mm, 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 mm. You know, forget this Christian stuff. Well, that's, that's, that's the problem. The wicked flee when no one's chasing them, the Bible says, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Man, I, I think it's important, you know, to, uh, 
to, to realize that we, we might have to be mentally preparing ourselves for a day. And I think we've touched on it in the last two years. We've touched on, on what are you gonna do when things get a little sticky? When, when, when people tell you, you can't do that anymore. You can't read your Bible or you can't speak the Bible. When the Bible says, Christians go out into all the world and preach the gospel. We're, we're told to go and share the Bible with people. So what happens when the government says you can't do that anymore? That's something you should be thinking about because you're gonna either A, uh, bow down and put the mask on. I mean, get the injection. I mean, <laughs> wait, sorry. No, or, or you're gonna. Now, now I understand, here's the problem with the mask and the injections and all this stuff is it's, it's a little hard to make a huge biblical case for those issues. Um, and people do and people try and all that stuff. And, um, you know, for me, those, those were more, less questions of a pastoral question or a biblical question and more of a constitutional question in my mind. Uh, I'm thankful for our constitution. I, I'm really thankful that we have religious liberty or theoretically we're supposed to here in the United States. I'm thankful for that and I wanna live by our constitution. So that's what the, what the issue of masks and all that stuff tended to be more of a constitutional question. But if you ask me, those are just the little test balloons to see what's gonna happen when they start saying, you know what, you can't say that about gay marriage anymore. Or you can't talk about transgenderism in a biblical kind of way. Or those, that's coming right around the corner. And uh, they're trying to define hate speech and, and, and criminalize those things. It's, it's coming, mark my words, it's coming. And you're gonna be forced to decide, am I gonna you know, go the wimpy way and just say, well, I guess I gotta obey the laws of the land. Uh, I don't wanna get into trouble. Uh, you gotta start saying, wait a minute, when do you stop preaching the Bible? When do you stop teaching true things? Um, that's something you're gonna be required to do. Well, as it turns out here, um, in, in our text, we see these people, they're, they're facing those kind of dilemmas where they're sort of living one way on, on uh, Sabbath, uh, going to the temple, but then they're doing a whole nother thing on the rest of the week. Well, he starts then in, in uh, verse six. He says, therefore, I will make Samaria as a heap of the field, as the plantings of a vineyard. I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley and I will discover the fountains thereof and all the graven images thereof shall be beaten into pieces and all the hires thereof shall be burned with fire and all the idols thereof I will lay desolate. For she gathered of it the hire of a harlot and they shall return to the hire of a harlot. The idea is here just basically um, sexual immorality. Um, isn't it interesting that sexual immorality is not a new thing in history? It's been, it's as old as these ancient passages of the Bible. People just behaving badly sexually. It's something that the Lord very clearly defines in his word. And when you sin sexually, the Bible calls that fornication. Well, what's fornication mean? Anything that's sexual outside of the marriage boundaries. Um, and I should say today in biblical marriage boundaries, you know, God defines marriage, Jesus even does in the Gospel of Mark. But you know, Genesis defines marriage between a man and a woman. And Jesus said it was between a man and a woman and it's a marriage before God and, and with each other covenant. And that's the only uh, boundaries that the Lord says, that's what I designed sexual practice for is within the boundaries of marriage. And it's to be enjoyed and it's something that's beautiful that God created and there's nothing ugly about it. The marriage bed is undefiled, the Bible says. But anything outside of that marriage 
sexually is called fornication. Porneia in the Greek uh, is the word. Pornography is where we get that sort of word porn. Uh, but it comes from the Greek of, of fornication, anything that's sexual outside of, of, um, of the biblical form of marriage. So, so um, this has been going on forever. It's not, there's nothing new under the sun, like Solomon said, and especially when it comes to sexual immorality. But man, um, we're living in a day where it's running rampant. It was in those days too. And that's why verses six and seven talks about this, the, the sort of the gathering of for hire of a harlot. It's sort of an idiom of their sexual promiscuity that was happening in those days. Now, Micah, he sort of reacts to this whole thing. Check it out in verse eight. Therefore will I wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like, a dra- like the dragons and mourning as the owls. For her wound is incurable, for it has come to, unto Judah. He has come to the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Interesting response here from Micah the prophet. Howl, mourn, you know, uh, he, this guy is passionate for these people. And what he's howling about is, yeah, it's bad enough that the northern tribes are gonna be wiped out, but he, say, but he even is howling because he knows Jerusalem's headed the same direction. Um, in some ways, you know, we can say, say that's what we've seen generationally. We've seen it coming. All the, the generations of sin and the way it progresses through time. And we, we, the question is, are you heartbroken for that? Howling and mourning, that's what's going on with Micah. Um, very different, by the way, from the prophet Jonah. Remember Jonah? Did Jonah howl and mourn because of the sins of Nineveh? No, he howled and mourned because God saved Nineveh. Um, he was like, oh, I just wish you would have destroyed him. Um, what an interesting change of attitude. Uh, these prophets are very different one from the other. But um, I do believe it's more God's heart to be more like a Micah and less like a Jonah. Even as Jesus wept over Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, remember? As Jesus wept over Jerusalem, um, there's a compassion there. Um, and when we see uh, you know, God's people rebelling against the Lord, it should be sad in our hearts. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says, oh, to the church at Ephesus, he said, man, he said, we've shed many tears for you uh, there in Ephesus. Um, are you shedding tears or are you more of, you know, of a Jonah? Yeah, Lord, let them have it, crush them. Those people from that other news channel. <laughs> let them all die a death that's painful. Or are you sad and weeping and mourning? Are you a Jonah or are you a Micah? That's a good question to ask. Um, it should sadden us when we see sinful behavior because the Lord is grieved um, and he would that everyone repent and he would that none should perish. That's the, the heart of the Lord. Well, anyway, that's kind of what you sense here is as Micah sort of howls, wails and strips himself naked. That is that he ripped his clothes uh, in, in despair because of their sins, even all the way to Jerusalem. Now in verse 10, uh, all the way through verse 15, he's gonna start using uh, literary ter- uh, things that you, you uh, people that are into that stuff uh, might get a kick out of, but you gotta read it in the Hebrew text to really get the full idea. You'll miss it altogether here in the English translation. So it's funny that there's things that we completely miss about what Mike is trying to do here, but what he's gonna use is puns and homonyms. Let's read verse 10. It says um, in verse 10, declare ye it not at Gath, weep ye not at all in the house of Ephrah, roll thyself in the dust. Pass ye away, thou inhabitant of Saphir, 
having thy shame naked. The inhabitant of Zeanan came not forth in the morning of Beth Edel. He shall receive of you his standing. For the inhabitant of Morot waited carefully for good, but evil came down from the Lord under the gate of Jerusalem. O thou inhabitant the uh, inhabitant of uh, Lachish, bind the chariot of the swift beast. She is the beginning of this of the sin to the daughter of Zion, for the transgressions of Israel were found in thee. Therefore shalt thou give presents to Moreshet Gat. Um, now that's that place where Micah is from. He was a Moreshite, remember? But that's another name, Moreshite Gat. Is, is another name for that place where Micah's from. The houses of Achzib shall be a lie to the kings of Israel, verse 15. Yet will I bring an heir unto thee, O inhabitant of Merishah. Um, he shall come unto Adullam, the glory of Israel. Now, when you read that, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue. Did you notice that? It's actually a hard, that's a hard thing just to read in the English text. But if you were to read it in the Hebrew, it, it just flows right off the tongue. The reason why is because he uses sort of a play on words um, um, that, that's kind of interesting. Like, let me just give you, I'm not gonna go through all these uh, because it's, it's a fairly tedious study to, to do this. But like in verse uh, 10, when it says, declare ye it not at Gath, weep ye not at all in the house of Aphra or Aphra, uh, roll thyself in the dust. Um, so what, what he does here is if you take the couple of the Hebrew words here, for example, this, this place called Aphra, um, the Hebrew word for the, the, the word uh, dust is Afar. Uh, afar, Afra. <laughs> That's the difference between those two words. And so, um, uh, um, you know, it's like um, Kesara, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. It's like, it's got kind of this repetitive feel with these uh, you know, homonyms and puns or plays on words. So um, the word, if you, if you were living in those days and you talked about the house of Afra, you'd think, well, that sounds almost like the house of dust. That's almost what, he, what you'd think if you were reading that. And then he says right here, he says, um, declare, weep in the house of Afra, roll thyself in the dust. So it's a play on words and it would just kind of roll off the tongue because of the similarity of the words. Let me give you one more example uh, of this kind of play on words. It's all throughout this whole section, verses 10 through 15. Um, the city of Shafir, um, Shafir, uh, beautiful, fair, and comely is Shafar. Shafir, Shafar. Um, that's the, those are the two words that are used right there in verse 11. Pass ye away, thou inhabitant of Shafir, having shame and nakedness. Um, but it's, it's, um, it sounds like beautiful, but it's actually ugly is kind of the sort of the conflict there is that he's talking about. And we can go on and on. The, the whole thing sort of plays on words, um, which is interesting. Why does he do that? Why does Micah see fit to do kind of a poetry sort of technique? Um, uh, who knows, but maybe it was to sort of get the attention of the people. Um, have you ever noticed that sometimes when people say things that are sort of structured in a witty sort of way, people will sit up and take note and read it or listen to it? I wonder if the people are like, this, this prophet's a little different, man. L listen to this guy. He sort of says these things that have double entendre or different meanings and, and uh, puns and stuff. And maybe this was a play on words just to help catch people's attention. 
Um, but it is interesting because the Hebrew people love it because they memorize these sections um, because they, they are uh, linguistically kind of profound. Um, so all that to say, um, you know, here we see this kind of radical use of, of uh, linguistics and Micah was no dummy. That, that's the truth of the matter. Well, verse 16, um, it goes on. Uh, it says in verse 16, this is a funny one for all you uh, that are um, follically challenged. <clears throat> verse 16, make thee bold and pull thee for thy delicate children, enlarge thy boldness as the eagle for that where they are gone into captivity from thee. <laughs> this, is, this is interesting. Well, who wants to enlarge thy boldness as an eagle? Well, did you know, for you bald guys, did you know you're in good standing with the Bible? If you think about it, like most of the really solid dudes in the Bible were just bald. Remember, Paul the Apostle was a bald guy. Um, um, here's a funny one. Remember, uh, um, Elisha was a bald guy. Remember when he was walking out of town, a bunch of little kids came up. It, little kids were actually probably young adults in the language of the Hebrew. And they said, go up that bald man, go up that bald man. They were making fun of him being bald. And so Elisha curses these people, cursed be you. And do you guys remember what happens? She bears come out of the woods and eat them all up and crush the, their bones. Uh, don't mess with the bald guys. That's a Bible thing. Now what's even more hilarious is uh, all the guys with big fat ha hairdos, they're kind of bad guys. Absalom, Samson's kind of not your best model citizen. Um, uh, John the Baptist might go for, as, as the great one with big hairdo, but, um, but anyway, just, it is funny. So you say, okay, but what's this? This is kind of funny because when I was a young guy, um, me and some friends, we wrote a, a song, it was actually, in the 80s, you know, when kind of the punk, punk thing was around. And we wrote this great song, Enlarge Thy Baldness as an Eagle. And it was from this verse. Um, you know, and, and we had scripture, uh, scriptures about, you know, the big fat, you know, do we sang about the, the she bears that came and ate the, 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 the kids and stuff. Anyway, um, uh, I won't sing that for you tonight. I don't do punk anymore. I'm, I'm old. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, all that to say, what's this all about? Well, as it turns out, this isn't actually um, just, you know, being bald. This, this says, make yourself bald. What does that mean? It means they were supposed to shave their heads bald, which in those days, when you do that, it meant you were in deep mourning and struggle. That's what's going on here. Make your head bald and pull your hair is the idea for thy delicate children. In other words, what's gonna happen to your children? You, you shave your head in grief. Enlarge thy baldness as an eagle uh, is, is not a great term. It sounds so glorious, doesn't it? But it means be sorrowful and be mourning for um, your children are gonna go into captivity from thee. This is a heavy word from Micah the prophet. Um, and this is what he's saying. This is what he's talking about. So bald equals grief, remorse, um, and uh, despair is the idea here. Well, this brings us to Micah chapter two, verse one. Um, it says here, woe unto them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. The idea, some say this is more of a sexual thing, but there's others who say, no, this is more of them imagining evil ideas. Um, it's interesting the Bible talks about how uh, men have this continual imagination of evil and we invent things of evil. Are we getting good at inventing evil things? Oh my, there's so many things we could talk about here. I remember when I was talking, uh, you know, 15 years ago from this section of scripture, 
And uh, just reflecting on some of my old notes and stuff from uh, previous teachings here in Micah, I was thinking, man, I had no idea what I was, I mean, I knew things were evil, but I had no idea. I, I remember the last time I was here talking with you guys about this section of scripture, I talked about, watch out, MySpace. MySpace is dangerous. Now, I didn't even know what I was talking about because I'd never been on MySpace when I was talking about it, but I had seen some weird things happen with marriages and couples and people. And at that time, I was like, man, watch out, you guys, MySpace, this whole thing called social media, whatever that is. Man, I had no idea how evil it would actually get. Like, it's so much worse today. And like social media, man, um, it's, it's a plague upon our society. Oh, it's weird because it's one of those things that it does some good too. Like there's a lot of good you can do with social media, um, but there's also a lot of evil and that's the way it often is. But this idea of, you know, people lying in their beds imagining what could we do next? Um, and they're, they're constantly, you know, this whole metaverse Facebook is trying to tout and, and work on and stuff. Um, there's already problems. Did you hear about the girl who in the beta version here, she's in there, the metaverse, and she gets raped by these guys. Now, how is that possible in the metaverse? Um, there's, there's just all kinds of blatant sinfulness and unaccountability for sin. You know, and, and man, today it's, it's not just you know, MySpace, it's TikTok and Facebook and YouTube and Instagram. And, um, and if you if you're really wanna get into the weeds, you know, Netflix's um, social dilemma. How many of you guys have seen that? Raise your hand. Yeah, uh, it'll, it'll be a, a, a splash of cold water um, because the people that created some of these social media platforms are saying, run for your life. And they're weirdos. They're not even, like, I'm not even saying they're believers or anything. They're just saying, run for your life. Like, here's one of the guys who is part of the original um, uh, deal. You know, um, he, he uh, wrote, a, he's the author of 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Right Now, but he's also one of the guys who started it all um, but he said, it's the gradual, slight, imperceptible change in your own behavior and perception that is the product. Like he, when this guy talks, he, it's a little creepy, uh, but it's, um, you know, the guy who invented the like button, um, uh, he says, run for your lives. Uh, he, he thought like, when you liked something, he thought it would actually encourage people. It was gonna be positive. Let's, let's have some positive reinforcement. When people like your photo, just click like, it'd be awesome. Little did he know it would make teenage girls suicidal because they didn't get enough likes for their last picture of beauty or whatever. Um, it's, it's, it's harming people and our kids. Um, and it's, it's really interesting to me, this gradual, slight, imperceptible change. You know, Psalm 63, uh, verses six, uh, five and six and seven. It says, my soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in night watches because thou hast been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. One of the things you can guard against, uh, you know, have you ever noticed sometimes it's when you lay down at night to go to bed that you think through stuff? And that's where a lot of evil actually happens. That's what the Bible's saying here. These people, they lay on their bed and devise iniquity. Uh, and and that's, that's something that we need to replace. Um, you know, some people go to bed watching late night TV as they're going to bed and that's the last thing they see in their minds. And, the, and there's a lot of wickedness and uh, just stuff that shouldn't be in your mind. We, we need to uh, do like this, Psalm 63, the psalmist, when I remember upon my bed and meditate upon Thee in the night watches. Focus your heart and your mind on the Lord and his word. I know I sound like a fuddy-duddy, 
but I was more, I was more right 15 years ago than I had any idea. Run for your lives, be careful, watch out. Um, the enemy is at full-time work trying to mess us up with the imagination of evil things. Well, he goes on in verse two, he says, and they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, against this family do I devise an evil from which ye shall not remove your necks. Neither shall you go haughtily, for this time is evil. Interesting, you know, um, it's basically you plot evil things. Now I'm gonna plot some stuff, judgment really, against you. The Lord said, I'm gonna judge you. So in verse four, uh, in that day shall one take up a parable against you and lament with a doleful lamentation and say, we be utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people, how he hath removed it from me. Turning away, he hath divided our fields. Um, this is another one of those places in the Bible where Israel would become sort of a byword or a phrase that would have uh, double meaning. You know, there, there'll be like um, sort of a name, oh, don't be like the Israelis. Watch out for those Israelis because they've, they've done all these evil things and now God's gonna judge them. So they became sort of a byword is the idea. Um, verse five, um, therefore thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. That's just a fancy way of various interpretations, by the way, about verse five. But most uh, agree, it, it means that there'll be no more worshiping of God in that place is the idea because of their sins. Verse six, prophesy ye not, say they to them that prophesy. They shall not prophesy to them the, uh, that they shall not take shame. In other words, tell the true prophets to stop prophesying. Uh, we don't wanna be shamed by the true prophets. Um, we don't wanna hear bad things. We only wanna hear good things. And this is something we saw um, in, during Isaiah's prophecy, excuse me, in Jeremiah's prophecy. We see all these, these people saying, yeah, we don't wanna hear the bad stuff. Only tell us, tickle our ears, you know. We only wanna hear things we want to hear. Oh, how sad it is today that that's the same pressure, I think, instead of the prophets. Now, the pastors and teachers and preachers are being sucked into this. Well, I only wanna say stuff that's positive and, and say you know, light, fluffy things. Don't wanna hear bad things. So they're not getting the truth. Um, that's the sad truth, and, and that's what's going on here. Um, we don't wanna hear bad things. Verse seven. Uh, oh, thou that are named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord straightened? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? Um, uh, it's, it's interesting, you know, if you're doing the right thing, these words, by the way, should be comforting there in verse seven. You know, uh, are, are you doing, doing the right thing? Are you walking the straight and narrow? Um, do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? In other words, the word of God should be encouraging. Have you ever um, noticed that the Bible can do both? It can be a real encouragement as you're just like, oh yes, I love walking with the Lord and I'm doing the right thing. But sometimes you read the scriptures and you're like, ugh, it hurts. Um, and it can be like a consuming fire. You know, fire is a funny thing. Fire can either be warm and cozy and fun and comforting, or it can be horrifying and painful and brutal and deadly. Um, I, I believe the Lord is like a consuming fire. 
Um, the Bible talks about the eyes of the Lord are like a consuming fire. Um, and you say, well, is that scary? I don't know, you tell me. If you're walking with the Lord and doing what his word says, then his eyes are gonna be a fire of warmth and goodness. But if you're walking contrary to God and rejecting God and his word, then his eyes are a consuming fire of pain and, and struggle. Um, you know, in Jeremiah chapter five, verse 14 says this, wherefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in thy mouth fire. And this people would, and it shall devour them. Like that's the scary side of the word of God. The word of God is like a, a, a fire. It's either comforting or it's devouring. And that's kind of what's, what's being said here in a rhetorical question there in verse seven. It goes on in verse eight. Even of late, my people is risen up as an enemy. Ye pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. The women of my people have ye cast out from their pleasant houses, from their children have ye taken away my glory forever. Um, talking a little bit about poverty and compassion, um, this is an interesting dilemma that we find ourselves in today with um, the homelessness on the rise. Um, I love some of the things some of you guys are doing. Um, and we even have people that have you know, specific ministries to the homeless. But you know, it's, it's um, one of those things that I, I feel that um, is so different than even 20 or 30 years ago. Um, the question is, um, what is the deal with the homeless right now? Um, it, it's interesting because our text, we even read earlier in this chapter that there are people that are coming onto people's property and just saying, this field is mine. And the Lord says, that's wrong. Um, and they were, they were just sort of squatting on their property. Um, you could almost make an argument one way of saying, um, yeah, you gotta do work. And the Bible says, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's what the scriptures say. Um, and Jesus talked about how the poor you'll always have with you. So there's this, there is one side of scripture that does say, you know, sometimes if you're not gonna be willing to work, you're not gonna eat. Like the Bible talks to the person who's unwilling to, to do that. But the Bible also talks about us being compassionate. Then you start to see, and this is, let's, let's use some verbiage of uh, some of the worst of our society. Um, what about, you know, like systemic poverty? Is there such a thing? Because as it turns out, you know, if you kind of look at the politics of it today, um, there's a creating of homelessness that's happened like crazy. Who, who is creating and what are they creating? Why is it that we're assisting people in the state of Oregon, we, we, we've said, we're gonna make it easier for you to get needles and drugs and crack pipes. Um, that's, that's happening as we speak. There's, we're gonna make sure that they have a supply because we don't wanna be racist. What? And um, now any public land is, you can set up your tent. That, that's, that's the rules in Oregon that we just set up. And, 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 and part of me says, wait a minute, if we're gonna just so totally accommodate you know, um, the, the drug addictions and, and, and man, it just starts getting very deep and very confusing. Where are all the drugs coming from? How are we letting the drugs into the country? Why are we uh, making these available more than ever? And then the church feeling bad says, man, we'd love to help the homeless. It's something we'd like to do. When systemically we're saying, no, we're gonna pour fire on that, or gasoline on that fire so that it rages even worse. What do you do about that? Well, I believe it's, it has to do with the Lord putting on your heart, how do you help the homeless? Some people say, well, the church should help the homeless. Well, as it turns out, I'm not sure the Bible actually even teaches that. 
The church should help the homeless. Should the, should the church as, a, as the institution help the homeless? We do. Athey Creek gives money to organizations. We've done things personally. We have people in our church that actually go out weekly and help feed the poor and give blankets. We, we, we've given soup and food and we've done a ton of stuff. And we continue to do that and we will continue to do that. But um, I have to admit over the years, we've probably done less of that because of its ineffectiveness. The stuff that we've done is pretty ineffective. Um, and, and we're just watching this more rampant issue. And by the way, you know, um, it has a lot to do with sin as well. If people really wanna sin, they're gonna sin. It's interesting, you know, I've seen it on both sides. You know, I've helped the guy at the end of the um, off ramp with the cardboard sign, I've helped him. I've picked him up, took him to get food. We've brought him here to church and dusted him off and got him clothes and, and helped them. And we've done that. I've done that personally. Um, we've baptized them in the river and got them saved. Like it's been interesting, but you know, one guy will be truly sincere and will see a great work. Another guy is just really looking for the free handout. And when you don't continue through with, you know, paying all his money that he wants for this or that, then he's furious. And you, and, and you have to wonder which one's the right one. The answer, being led by the spirit. I think individually, each one of you, the church, we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit when we should jump in and when we should not. That's the only thing I can um, say about that is that we have to be sensitive to the leading and the prompting of the Spirit. Well, Brett, what if I get taken for a ride? What if I help the homeless person and they, I give them money and they just use it on drugs? Um, well, I'm not sure I'd, I'd want that to be the reason you don't help people. I'd rather, listen, I'd rather be guilty of trying to help people and have them use my, the money for a drug and be taken for a nincompoop. I'd rather do that than be a stingy, greedy person and never help anybody at all. I'd rather err on the side of graciousness because, well, that's what Jesus did, except he didn't ever err. But Jesus did sometimes help poor people, not always. He walked by people that were poor and asking for alms. Remember the guy at the gate beautiful that was asking for alms and the disciples said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have to give unto thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Well, that miracle took place at the gate beautiful. And the Bible teaches us that that person sat there for many years at the gate beautiful. And guess what? Jesus walked through the, that gate many times. Why didn't Jesus heal the guy at the gate beautiful? As it turns out, there was a timing and a plan and a purpose that God had that went outside of their ability to help. And um, finally, uh, the Lord had a timing where that guy would be saved, Peter and John and those guys. But all that to say, um, I think that's the key is for us to be led by the Spirit. Um, you wanna know one of the greatest ways, uh, in my opinion, to help the homeless? I know this is gonna sound crass and probably insensitive and whatever, but honestly, one of the great ways to maybe help the homeless is to vote. I'm not kidding. Because um, the people in office largely today, especially in the state of Oregon, could care less about the homeless. They really could care less. That's the problem. And it, it serves them well to continue to let this uh, problem happen all across the West Coast. It's so tragic to me. The homeless situation is so sad to me, what's happening. Um, it's almost like these people have a bent on saying, we're gonna destroy our lives and largely um, the way we're handling it as a culture is saying, yeah, let's just give them everything they need 
to destroy their lives. And we have all these deaths and fentanyl and all kinds of ODs and stuff. And if people would just kind of realize, wow, uh, how's that all happening? It's because people uh, that we've elected into office. That's, I'm just telling you. Brett, you're being very political. No, I'm just telling you that that's the problem if you really wanna know. Um, so we have to be careful, be careful. Don't be the stingy, well, because we, those people in office, we're not gonna help the homeless. Well, that's not the attitude of Christ either, right? So um, that's where you have to be led by the Spirit and help people as the Lord leads you to do so. Um, poverty and compassion, that's what was lacking here in, in verses eight and nine. But then in verse uh, 10, it says, arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest. Because it is polluted, it shall destroy you, even with sore destruction. Um, it's all like advice saying, man, get out of Dodge. It's gonna destroy you unless you get out of here. You're, this isn't meant for you to stay here and live, so get out. That's an interesting word from the prophet. Um, there's an interesting sermon that was preached on this uh, and I wanted to tell you about it. There was a young uh, guy in the 1820s who was 14 years old and started to go on the road to preach. Um, he was like one of these preachers that would go into towns and villages in the United States here in the 1800s, uh, 1820s. Um, he's known to have put 19,000 miles on his poor horse. You know, he'd ride his little horse all around the countryside in, the, in, the, in America and preach sermons. David Marks was a Baptist, sort of itinerant preacher kind of guy. Um, but he wore himself out, man, just preaching and traveling and preaching. He preached three or four times a day and just wore himself thin. When he was 40 years old and dying, having utterly exhausted himself, um, he, he had one more unusual sermon up his sleeves. He, there's actually some interesting sermons he preached that we could talk about, but this one was maybe the most interesting, though he was on his deathbed. He asked his old friend, Charles Finney, if he could address the students of Oberlin College. Um, Marx's friends tried to dissuade him, but he was intent on preaching that night. He was carried into the college on a gurney and Finney announced to the startled students, he, said, he warned them that Brother Marx would probably not survive the sermon. Um, the doctor said they could find no pulse in one wrist and only a little uh, tremulous motion in the other. And if he would die while he was preaching, the students were advised to remain calm and not leave their seats. Can you imagine what a, what a thus they introduced um, Pastor Marx and he began his sermon and his text, Micah chapter two, verse 10. He said, my dear friends, I thank God that I have the prospect of addressing you once more and for the last time. This has been the desire of my heart. The lamp of life has for some time been flickering in its socket. And in the opinion of friends, I have but a few hours to live. I suppose my coffin is being made as we speak. He said, the first and leading thought of which I wish to dwell is that God has not designed this place as our final home. As the prophet said, arise and depart for this is not your rest. The light of the blessed immortality dawns beyond the tomb. Christ is so near and so precious that I cannot fear death, oh my brethren. No reality is so sure, none so sweet, none so glorious as the Christian hope. He's, he used this scripture to say, arise, depart. This is not your rest here on this earth. And he spoke of the brevity of life, the certainty of heaven, and ended urging the students, live God for God, for your generation. And, um, and uh, there's so much to do for God. He said, farewell, Brother Finney, Finley, Finney, and I will give you my hand. And all who love God, for farewell. 
None of the students ever forgot that sermon because about an hour after they hauled him out and he, they took him to his room where he uh, departed and went to heaven. What a way to go. That's pretty dramatic. What a dramatic sermon. If I'm laying here on a grave, okay, guys, turn to Micah chapter two, <laughs> verse 10, uh, the EKG or whatever beeping in the background. Um, that would be a powerful sermon, I guess. But that, that's what happened here. Arise ye, depart, for this is not your rest because it is polluted. Boy, that's the truth. This earth is polluted. Um, and the ways of this world are, but, but this is not our home. Well, I better hurry. I'm running t- uh, way behind. Verse 11, if a man walking in the spirit and falsehood do, do lie saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and strong drink, he shall even be a prophet of this people. In other words, the prophets were saying, eat, drink, and be merry for the destruction was coming. But verse 12, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel and put them together as sheep of Basra. As the flock in the midst of their fold, they shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. Then the breaker is come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. What a strange verse to end chapter two. Um, Who's the breaker? Um, Most Bible scholars believe we're talking about the Messiah, Jesus, who's called the breaker. Um, That's an interesting delineation. The breakers come up before them. How do we think it's Jesus? Well, it's the king shall pass before them and the Lord on the head of them. That's that's when Jesus will lead the way. And by the way, the mention of Basra in verse 12 also speaks of, of Jesus. Well, let's just quickly uh, tackle chapter three. I know that's only 12 verses. We'll be able to zip this out. Uh, the, there's three groups talked about here. Um, group one in chapter three is corrupt judges, verses one through four. It says, and I, hear, I, I said, hear, I pray you, O heads of Jacob, you princes of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know judgment who hate the good and love the evil? who pluck off their skin from off of them and their flesh from off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them. And they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot, as the flesh within the cauldron. Then shall they cry unto the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at at that time as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. He's speaking of the corruption. They're not cannibals literally uh, in this, but they're basically chopping up the people and spitting them out. Uh, and, and that's what the Lord's saying, are you kidding? You don't think you're gonna, I'm gonna give back judgment to you judges that have hurt the people of Israel? So the first group he calls out is you know, uh, the judges. He's basically saying, you know better than this. And, um, and uh, the Lord's saying, you're sinning in this. Group number two, you've got number one, corrupt judges. Group number two, corrupt prophets, verses five through eight. Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people error, uh, that bite with their teeth and cry peace. And he that putteth not into their mouths, even they prepare war against him. Therefore night shall be unto you and that you shall not have a vision and it shall be dark unto you and you shall not divine, and the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. Then shall the seers be ashamed, and the diviners confounded. Yea, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer of God. But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of judgment, and of might, 
to declare unto Jacob his transgression and, and Israel's sin. Micah's like, I'm the only prophet who's actually given the true word right now. That's what he says, I'm the one who's saying it. The rest of the guys, you're gonna be shamed because you don't have a word from God. Um, a lot of, the sad thing about the prophets of the Old Testament, they're pictured as preachers in the new, pastors in the new. And you see this correlation of guys that don't have a good word from the Lord because they're not seeking the Lord. They're not listening and they're, they're, um, they're you know, more into wokeism or um, you know, all the various movements of the church uh, and the hype and, and things that are kind of fads and fancy, but there's no consistency teaching and speaking the word of the Lord. And Micah's like, man, I'm, I'm the one full of power and spirit of the Lord declaring to Jacob what they need to hear. So there's corrupt judges, corrupt um, you know, uh, prophets, but then also corrupt politicians. Um, uh, verse nine, hear this I pray you, you heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. Boy, we could make a sermon out of that right there. Are there people perverting equity today? Oh my goodness. Uh, boy, don't get me off on that one. Verse 10, they build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward and the priests teach for hire. Man, these are just hired guns. They're hirelings. Jesus talked about the shepherd that was just a hireling, you know, just doing it for the pay. And when the wolf came, the shepherd runs for his life and doesn't care about the sheep. That's the same thing here. These guys are just teaching for hire. And verse 11, the prophets thereof divine for money, yet they will lean upon the Lord and say, is, is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as the field and Jerusalem shall become heaps and the mountain of the house as high places of the forest. This is the verse, by the way, verse 12 is what Jeremiah quoted at the beginning of our study that saved Jeremiah's life, verse 12 of chapter three. Speaking of Jerusalem's going down. So there were corrupt you know, judges, corrupt prophets and corrupt politicians. Um, and man, this, this speaks of today. Be careful, Christian church today. <clears throat> I know I probably sound like a broken record, and, but it's sad um, when, when people and pastors and churches will only say what people want to hear. Liberal theology is, um, progressive theology is um, running rampant today in the church, in, in the world, not just in America. And don't let progressive theology creep into your heart. Um, be uh, people that stand against these uh, sort of liberal ideas that aren't in line with scripture. Um, you know, it's funny, uh, I've been at it long enough now uh, in ministry. You know, I started as, I, I was ordained as a pastor um, when I turned 18. And I've been doing, you know, marrying and burying and since then. Uh, I really have, I've done a lot of funerals, a lot of weddings, uh, over a thousand weddings. Um, I've, been, I've been preaching the word for a long time but one thing that I've seen is all these preachers that have the newfangled ideas. And you know, if it wasn't back when I was younger, the, the, um, you know, the Toronto blessing and the big you know, Holy Ghost movement of Rodney Howard Brown and holy laughter and bubble out your belly. Um, the grandchildren of him is Bethel Church, by the way. Same, same people, same people, just the grandchildren of Rodney Howard Brown. Um, um, you know, it's just another fad that came and went and the church got all sidetracked and off course doctrinally with them. And then if it wasn't that, there was some less, less uh, dastardly maybe, but almost dangerous, the seeker friendly movement. I saw that and everybody said, oh, we gotta make the, the church a place for seekers. 
let's make sure and have the coffee and the McDonald's and everything in, this, in the sanctuary and, and we'll have everything really great so people can come and be comfortable. And we don't wanna say anything like hell or anything that's really disruptive. Uh, we'll just say things about victory and all that stuff. Uh, seeker friendly. When God said the father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. The, the biggest seeker actually was God as it turned out. We were saying that back then, but oh, how hip and cool it was to be seeker friendly. Then it became the emergent church. Remember the emergent church movement? They were saying, we don't know who we are. <laughs> who can really know? Um, the church, what is the definition of the church? It's a discussion. And the problem is, fortunately, some of the emergent churches kind of realized this is wacko. And as it turns out, it's not a discussion, it's the word of God. We've got the word of God right here that tells us what the church is. But sadly, yes, <laughs> that's right. Um, but remember the emergent movement, sadly, a lot of those churches started, it's a discussion and they started coming up with harebrained ideas of what they thought the church should be that had nothing to do with what the Bible, and those churches all kind of failed and meant a lot, left a lot of people very disillusioned and sadly, seeker friendly. And then it all became about seeker friendly, emergent, and about community, it's all about community. It's all about community. <laughs> no, it's not all about community. Community's great. It's a benefit of being a part of a church, yes but it's not all about community. Like I've just watched all these things and now progressive Christianity and this whole thing of wokeism. And, and what we're seeing right now is woke churches with these woke pastors and they're all saying stuff that um, sounds so much like the world. They're trying to sort of cater to the world's views and they're not actually going with the biblical sort of mentality. It's just another thing that's coming and going, but it's always heartbreaking to me to see good solid churches fall by the wayside with their kind of, hirelings, they're corrupt prophets and judges and politicians, if you would. It's the same thing that happened to the people of Israel in Micah's time. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's interesting. I've got a homework assignment for you guys because there's another Micah in the Bible you should, you should read about. Remember Micah of the book of Judges chapter 17? He was the Micah that just said, hey, let's make up things as we go. And I'll be a, a little priest in this guy's home and, I'll, I'll, um, and I'll, we'll make up a little thing and it'll be awesome and he'll have an ephod just like the priest in Jerusalem and everything's gonna be like little, a little miniature worship place that we'll make in our home. Um, and it's a picture of exactly what I'm talking about. Just making it up as you go. Making up religion or church of what you're supposed to be as a church. Just making it up as you go. Read Judges 17. And the story is profound because this, this guy, just, he's got his little Levite priest and his ephod and his little church thing going on and he gets crushed and God judges this guy and he loses everything. That's the sad thing. We need to stay on the straight and narrow path as Christians, you know, letting the word dictate what we believe, not the latest fad and fancy or the latest hired gun on YouTube that's got some fancy message or something like that. Uh, be careful. Books that are written, I know I sound cynical, but I, I, I rarely see a book anymore that I can go, oh yeah, that's really solid biblical truth. Most of the time it's just some fad that's coming and going. And there's a reason why they keep writing books about depression over and over and over again, because as it turns out, there's a biblical definition of de depression and how to deal with it. But then there's all these other books written by depressed people who are really going through really hard times, bless their hearts, I feel bad for them. But why are we keep writing, why, are, why is it hip right now for every pastor to write a church, about, a book about depression? It's because I'm, I'm not sure we're on to the, the way you deal with the depression. If you wanna know how to deal with the depression, search the scriptures, see what the Bible says, 
because the Bible has a lot to say about depression and there's a lot of help to be found there. I could go on and on, but it's late and so I won't. <laughs> be careful, church. Man, let's be biblical. We gotta be biblical, that's the thing. Lord, how I pray that you'd help us to just be reminded, even as Micah the prophet talked about the corruption that was going on during those days, Lord, I just see how human nature, we like the latest fad, the latest fun thing to talk about, whatever's hip and cool with the younger generation. It just comes and goes every single time. But Lord, it seems so sad to watch the, the casualties that tend to happen along the way. And I pray, Lord, that you'd raise up more and more um, churches and pastors and church leaders, men and women who will just be sticklers to your word. For there is where we find life and truth. And, and Lord, everything that we need is right here in your word. So um, help us not to be fad and fancy churches, but solid, consistent, searching of scripture churches. So help us with that, Lord. Bless these, your people who've taken this Wednesday night to carve out time to study your word. Bless them. Bring forth good fruit tonight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.